Hello, and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we'll be discussing A Civil Campaign by Lois McMaster Bujold, the fanfiction Lithograph by Romantic Drift, and Jingo by Terry Pratchett. And welcome to episode 13, Machiavellian Overthinkers. I'm Alex, the bubble tea one with extra bubbles because I like to pretend that I'm chewing on alien eggs. <laughs> I'm Freya. I don't like alien eggs. I am the black tea with flavor infusion one. So apple or vanilla for preference, but I also like black currant. Black currant is delicious. I'm Macy. And I'm all grey tea, obviously, uh, but only the right kind one does have standards. <laughs> one does indeed. We are three redheaded fantasy authors. And today we're talking about sneaky, conniving little shits. Uh, the favorite teas didn't really have anything to do with anything. We just thought you'd like to know that about us. I don't know. There's tea. There's tea in some of those tin poles. That's, well, that's true. true. It has been three weeks since we recorded an episode, so I think all of us have been busy reading all sorts of things. Uh, what have you guys been reading? I have been reading, uh, well, I finally got around to Carmen Maria Machado's book of short stories, Her Body mm. and Other Parties, mm. which is just as amazing as everyone says it is. So Everyone has been saying it's amazing. It's really, really good. They're kind of magical realism slash fantasy slash horror mm. aspects, but they come across as more sort of contemporary literary and they are amazing stories to do with especially women's bodies and the uh, rights of women's bodies and the demands placed on them and how they're characterized in society, but also some other things, some semi-autobiographical things. Really, really good. Highly recommend. Oh, no. And I don't I need also... more books. Why do you keep doing this to me? It's not very long. Okay. There's only, it's, not, it's not too long. And, and you can Maybe. read one short story before bed, you know, for nine days and you're done. Maybe I'll forgive you then. Yeah. You'll enjoy it. It's really good. And I also read Mark Oshiro's book, Hunger is a Gift, which is YA contemporary, which is not something that I read a lot of, but I, re I did enjoy this one. It took me a little bit to get into it, but then it got very intense uh, and really some really interesting stuff about the reality of uh, life in high schools and especially the, present, the police presence in high schools in America, mm. which as someone in, in Australia seemed almost science fiction dystopian. to me dystopian absolutely yep. so i'm really glad i read it it really um opened my eyes to a few things whereas i have been reading seeing like a state for forever uh to start with i, I brought this with me when i visited alex and would occasionally quote it to her in the middle of no context whatsoever and she'd be like what what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying to me woman but um it's a textbook about <laughs> The ways that nation states categorize and measure societies in order to enact change and the ways that this can go wrong, even when done with the best intentions. And it's a very interesting read if you're thinking about world building at any point. And I really enjoyed it, but it is ridiculously massive. You could use it as a murder weapon. There is something weird in your brain that you are like, you know what I feel like reading? enormous doorstop textbooks 
and epic stories. This is why I'm like, if, you, if I give you short stories, I think your brain will just break. It'll read it. They'll be like, now what? Now what? Where's you're, the rest? You're, you're not what? wrong. You're not wrong. I... Don't we all own a copy of Browdell's uh, The Structure of Everyday Life? Have, have you two read yeah, it? But so far, it's propping up my lamp. Like, neither no, of you two have, have read it. Reading. I've read both Browdell's no. Structure of Everyday Life and half of his Mediterranean and all of the James Scott seeing like a state, and I'm about to start in on the origins of totalitarianism. So... Jesus Christ. Listen, mm. listen, I was I was a math student in college. I didn't read enough textbooks then. I'm making up for lost time. That's fair. <laughs> I've also I've also been reading uh Queen's Gambit, which was a the second part of a four hundred thousand word long Star Wars dimension hopping time travel AU. Listen, this one is a shout out to the fabulous listener suggestion from All the Gardens on Tumblr. I am thus far loving it. And it involves various different versions of Padme being badasses and an OT3 with a non-evil Anakin who somebody picked up like a puppy that has peed on the rug and rubbed his nose in Darth Vader and was like, do you want to be this? Do you? Do you really? And then he went back and didn't because he's not quite as dumb as a puppy. Nice. I heard OC3 and I am interested. It is 400,000 words long. I'm not lying to you about that. Yeah, I'll save that for when I'm traveling a lot (laughs) and have a lot of time to get on planes. It's downloadable to your Kindle. Uh, And I have been reading a lot of things that aren't fan fiction. I mean, I have been reading a a lot of fan fiction as well. But uh, I read a couple of advanced review copies. uh, Unfit to Print by KJ Charles, which comes out July 10th. Empire of Sand by Tasha Suri, which comes out in November. Unfit to Print, I finished that one. Uh, It was so good, as usual. KJ Charles is incredible at everything. Empire of Sand, what? How do you have an ARC from KJ Charles? Yeah, see, I asked her this question, and the answer is really boring. Oh, she... She asked for it. Yeah, I mean, no, KJ Charles posted it on on Twitter saying, like, hey, does anyone want an ARC of uh, Unfit to Print? sign up on this google doc and i said yes me and so she emailed it to me <laughs> i don't know see it's because it's it's about the um like you know the pornographic print print porn industry yeah. right in victoria yes. England. so i feel like if you're going to distribute arcs there should be some kind of like code word at a like tiny shabby shop <gasps> and you walk in and you say the code word and you get the arc in brown paper. No, this was not an exciting adventure. Serpents, can we can we can we retire to a Scottish castle and start an ARC speakeasy? <laughs> <laughs> Is this like peak us? It, I think if someone hikes all the way to a Scottish castle. No, no, I've got a better idea. I have a better arts. idea. It's perfect. It's perfect. Okay. We will buy a riverboat on the Seine. Okay. And host host a book speakeasy that is mobile so we can flee the law. Flee. I would would just point out to everyone that we are currently recording and we have not even started talking about our episode yet. Let me finish telling everyone what I read this month so that we can get along to talking about the sneaky, conniving little shits. All right. Not an arc that I read. I Brothers of the Wild North Sea by Harper Fox, which was a recommendation from our lovely scribe Magali. Uh, Reflections by Diana Wynne Jones, and It Takes Two to Tumble by Cat Sebastian. That's everything that I read this month, including a bunch of my favorite Dragon Age Inquisition fanfics, which I decided <laughs> to reread because apparently I'm still in that hell. Oh, so. Oh. 
Uh, I also, before we get started, have a small piece of news, two small pieces of news, actually. It is now officially less than 100 days until the publication of A Conspiracy of Truths. Uh, I'm very excited about it. Yay, less than 100 days. Oh, my God. Uh, It is up for pre-order. So if you guys haven't pre-ordered it yet, doing so is really, really helpful to me. It would be super awesome if you did. Uh, If you can't afford to pre-order or if you're not in a position to do so right now, you can also uh, request it at your library library or do both which is even better and also i have a flash fiction piece coming out this month from fireside fiction uh if you are subscribed to fireside it came out in the quarterly print magazine but it should be on their website i forget exactly what day it's coming out but very very soon now if it hasn't already and macy i think you had a piece of news as well i do also yes so i have a short story out with cast of wonders it came out late in june so it's up there on the interwebs, in the wild. Uh, You can go and read it online now, and I'm sure we'll link it from the notes. It's a little piece called A Cradle of Vines about a lonely girl who makes friends with a magical plant. So So it is peak, Macy. I'm not going to lie. It's, yeah, a little bit. And, and it's very fancy because Cast of Wonders is also a podcast. So they recorded it with like a human who isn't me. Wonderful. And her accent matches mine. Aw. I know, I'm so happy. That's very good. Let's actually get started. Let's actually get started, yeah. So, conniving little shits, Machiavellian overthinkers. First of all, as is tradition at this point, what the fuck do we mean by that? Well, I assume most people have a vague idea of what we mean when we say Machiavellian. I think it's kind of come into general parlance as just meaning the kind of person who's very plotty and thinky and scheming. Uh, often in often in a political realm, but just in general. Obviously, it comes from uh, Niccolo Machiavelli, who was an Italian diplomat in the fifteenth uh, and sixteenth centuries, who wrote *The Prince*, which was his most famous work, and that's why we still think about Machiavelli these days. *The Prince* is a glorious little book, <laughs> and I have to tell you, some of the chapter titles are amazing. They're things like avoiding flatterers and <laughs> states won by lucky circumstance and someone else's armed forces. <laughs> and the role of luck in human affairs and how to defend against it. It's a blast. I thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> that is <them>. wonderful. <laughs> so do we, is there a difference between Machiavellian thinkers and Machiavellian overthinkers? I think as characters, yes. So when we think about Machiavellian thinking, Honestly, it's usually about power. The whole point Mm. of The Prince was Machiavelli was writing a book of advice, more or less, about how to gain power and how to hold onto power, partly modelling it on uh, Cesare Borgia and partly because he was in a state of having fallen from power and was essentially, I guess, sulk writing a letter (laughs) to his former self, being like, here's where we went wrong. That's adorable. Uh, That is. That, that's a broad interpretation of Machiavelli's <laughs> The Prince from me. <laughs> but I think if we think about Machiavellian overthinkers, we are saying that we like it when these characters aren't just always, you know, scheming and plotting. We like it when their tendency to scheme and plot can be used against them. Freya, I have a question. Yes, Alex. Will you one day write me fanfiction about Niccolo Machiavelli's The Prince? Okay, that already exists. Uh, By it's you. Called, um, well, there is the TV show The Borgias features. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't want. I don't want anyone else's. You I want, want me the to Freya write it. version. I want the Freya version. Ah, uh, I mean, I could. I'm not quite sure where it would go. But in the meantime, you should read The Enchantress of Florence by Salman Rushdie, which features teenage Machiavelli as a very cool character. 
but but you know you know the pro the pro tip about writing fan fiction about historical figures you just add a dragon and then you can sell it as original fiction there you nice. go nice so we can add like a whole new chapter using your dragon to control your peasants yes you have conquered them i love All right, it excellent <laughs> It would be like a. It would be you one of write those a lost chapter that we talked about, where it is like an ex, a missing chapter. Yes, there we go. Excellent. We fixed, we fixed that's everything. my that's my niche project. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question for you two. Oh gosh. About Machiavellian overthinkers. So, as readers, but also as writers, I suppose, why do we like encountering these characters, but also what purpose do you think they serve in fiction? Well, for mm. me, I really like them because it's really satisfying to watch a smart person being smart. And also it's really funny to watch a smart person being a particular kind of idiot. Yes. It's, it's kind of wonderful because it's really relatable. You know, speaking as a smart person, there have been so many times in my life when thinking that I was smarter or more clever than I actually am, I have fucked up and fallen on my face. And it's cool to watch another person go through that. It's very, I find it very relatable and sympathetic and kind of, it's a way of preparing myself for similar situations <laughs> so that if I ever get into a situation like that I can look at it and say like okay here's what I won't do because I read that story about so-and-so doing it that way and it didn't work out. I think for me though also um, one of the things I like about it is it's a good way to hold tension that isn't it isn't necessarily like a violent thing or a romantic comedy thing but like this character has this elaborate plan is it going to work or not it's a really good way to, to hold tension through a story yeah because you the reader kind of on the inside you are ooh, my favorite phrase you are in cahoots <laughs> i think i think alex you're coming at this from a much more emotionally mature place than i am oh, where do you come <laughs> because from because obviously like i agree that it's as someone who was a very smart unpopular selfish little kid yeah <laughs> that's relatable <laughs> hashtag us hashtag relatable um i always enjoyed this trope and i always enjoyed encountering this trope because i wanted to see a smart person win i wanted to see somebody mm. who was smart and not liked because they were smart uh go into a situation and use their smarts to be successful mm. so I always have a bit more of a, that wish fulfillment soft spot for the narratives where that person is shown to be finally successful yeah. or even the ones where things that look like setbacks or challenges or them being wrong are revealed to be part of the grand plan yes. at the end because it means that they were right. And the little seven-year-old in me who did not understand how everybody did not like her because she was just so smart and how could they not see that God, big gets mood. to sit there and go enormous yes, mood you show them all enormous yes. mood well i could i could make them like me but i'm above trying that hard <laughs> oh no i had no fucking clue i was just like i'll just sit here with my book and oh no i couldn't i couldn't i absolutely couldn't i did not have anything resembling the skills at that age i needed to level up with my frozen meat training <laughs> <laughs> oh jesus how do we get back here again i believed i could because i was a little shit i was just going to add i think it tied like the reason that i like the machiavellian overthinkers ties in a lot with why i like con artists mm -hmm. i because was going to bring it back to heists 
Yeah, it, it sort of hits the same area of my brain that makes me happy. But not stage magicians. Not fucking stage magicians. <laughs> Fuck off. How dare you even bring it up? Let's take it to the first tentpole then, uh, which is one of my favorite Machiavellian overthinkers of all time falling on his face in the most public and <laughs> catastrophic way, which is and slimy. It's what? impressively slimy. Yeah. Yeah, but he recovers from it. He he does fine at the end, and I think he learns a good lesson about people <laughs> and about himself and about not doing those sorts of things. And this person is Miles Vorkosigan, and the book that we're talking about is A Civil Campaign in particular. By? By uh, Lois McMaster Bujold. And Miles, at the beginning of the, the series, Miles kind of has a sort of an untrained natural talent for the Machiavellian overthinking. He's incredibly clever and incredibly smart and just does not have a lot of experience in using it effectively in the real world outside his immediate family. And I so, would say early early Miles is a prodigy in Zanetta's speed chess, but not Machiavellian. He gains that, I think yeah. you would say. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, I think you're right, because uh, Machiavellianism takes some <laughs> training and experience and foresight and planning and a deliberateness. And a, a Ravenclaw model, perhaps. Right, yeah, yeah. At least we're so, going to talk about that later. A Civil Campaign is, I think, the first book where we really see Miles stop leaning so hard on his intuition mm. and go into something with a clear end goal in mind, and that is to get Ekaterine <laughs> Worsoisan to marry him. See, it's interesting for me because I came into this book having skipped quite a few books in the Book of Saga. So the last one that I had read before I read Kamar, the immediate uh, book coming just before Civil Campaign, was the war game. So I've missed a good decade of Miles's character development. <laughs> and I feel like I was still, I was just seeing him come out of his intensely reactive, you know, human resources prodigy mode and develop the Machiavellian stuff. And now I'm seeing him sort of not quite post, but at the peak of it, mm -hmm. to the point where it's starting to interfere with his ability to be a human being. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to going back and filling in those those gaps. Yeah. So a civil campaign is a really amazing example of what happens when this kind of character tries to play chess with the people around him. And as it turns out, that doesn't work so good because people have their own agency and don't necessarily like to be handled in that situ mm. in that sort of way. And it's also a book about about three or four different chess masters, not mm -hmm. quite as good as Miles. Yeah. But three or four people also coming up with their own cunning plans. There's and a lot of happens, cunning plans. There's so many cunning plans. And it's what happens when four different people try to play cunning plan chess on the same board <laughs> without telling the others that that's what they're doing. Yeah. It's a wonderful it's, book. It makes me so, so happy. It was beautiful. It is. I really enjoyed it. It's exactly the kind of book that I want to write. And it yeah. was super interesting reading it, having first read The A Brighter Season fanfic oh yes that's the one that's about gregor and miles right yes because yes. It, it pings off a bunch of the similar things right i have not read that one yet it's been a hot second since i read it so um did you have thoughts about that macy yes um because the thing with a civil campaign is that it is miles attempting to 
seduce is not really quite the word caught. I would say he's trying to do romance. Capital D, capital R. He is R. trying to do, do romance. He's like attempting military strategy. He's yes. attempting to enact and romance on this poor woman. Um, whereas a deeper season is about Gregor doing an romance <laughs> on Miles. Yes. Except that Gregor is much better at it because he just says, fuck it. I'm just going to be really sincere and lay all my cards on the table and then step back and trust him, which if Miles had done to a Catherine would have also been amazing. And the thing with Miles is he's a, everyone talks about how part of his genius is a genius for people mm -hmm. in that he's very, very good with human nature and knowing who you can trust and what you can use people for and how far you push them and when you can trust them. Yeah. And I think that's one of the common threads that you see in this kind of character. Like you can't be a chess master without yes. knowing exactly how to move pieces and how they will move. And it's this particular book is what happens when, like he does know what kind of person a Catherine is and he knows what moves her, but he wants so badly that he has yes. blind spots and his emotions start rearing up and he get, becomes very reactive because he's emotional. Yes. And at the beginning you think, well, this could work because he does understand the ways in which she's been hurt and the ways in which she's wary. And he does have this very long plan that probably would have worked. It's just life happens. So the, 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 brief, the brief pressy of this tentpole, for those who haven't read it, being, well, Alex, do you want to give it as this is your summary? Sure. So I would really recommend if you haven't read this book, I would read and you haven't read any other Bujold books before. First of all, welcome. <laughs> Come along on this journey with us. I'm so excited for you. This is a great opportunity for you to experience something for the first time. And I'm so envious of, of people who have not read Bujold. But if you're going to jump right into the middle, which is totally a thing that you could do, I would recommend reading Komar before reading a civil campaign. They sort of go together. I would call them a duology, those two, mm -hmm. uh, because Komar in, uh, introduces a Katarin, sets up her whole history, shows you the relationship that we, she was in previously to meeting Miles, and sets up a whole lot of character background and backstory for them. And then in a civil campaign is when Miles sits down and says, I'm going to get serious. This is the woman that I want to marry. I will do an romance at her. And it very much is doing it at her rather than with her until he realizes, oh shit, I'm fucking this up and I'm going to ruin everything unless I start offering her a chance to be a participant in this rather than- It's not that he realizes it, he does fuck it up. He, well, he Quite does. does. Yeah. He does fuck it up. But specifically, um, she is still in mourning. Um, he- maneuvers her such that they have to spend some time together. Uh-huh. This is a little creepy, she, Miles. She, it's a lot he, creepy, Miles. It's a, it's a little creepy. He tells everyone he knows. God, Miles, shut up. Everyone he knows that he really wants to marry this lady, but he's trying to be good and do it subtly, so don't tell her. Ugh. Unsurprisingly, one of them doesn't get the later half of that message. Yeah. She finds out. happen. And things happen. And this being a Volkosigan book, it's spectacular. It is such a good book. This is a general um, lesson for our friendly neighborhood Machiavellian overthinkers. Don't manipulate the people in your inner circle. Yeah. Don't manipulate the people who love and trust you because they will cease to do both. 
Yes. At some point, you have to stop moving people and give people the opportunity to move themselves because mm -hmm. people have their own agency and it's not actually a really nice thing to do. It is not. And that is that is a really good thing that we see when we come across these kind of characters. I think there is a very common and satisfying emotional thread of when they actually learn to trust. And so that is a beautiful interpersonal character thing that you can set up if you have a character like this. And on the note of general things we're learning about Machiavellians going on court, yes. let's talk a little bit about our next tentpole, which yes. is because we are fond of Alex and wish her to survive, not <laughs> the entirety of Nirvana in Fire. We will get her eventually. We will. Oh, okay, we will. I started watching the first episode yesterday. <gasps> Okay. The, I think I have to find a different version because the one that I'm watching, the subtitles go super fast and I'm having <laughs> trouble like, keeping up with it. Watch it on Viki. Watch it on Viki if you mm. can. And also... I've seen Mei Cheng So's face. You have. He's yes. Isn't it a lovely face? It's, it's a lovely a, face. It's a very lovely face. Le the, the, the dapper um, mystic doctor does not feature nearly as much as the first episode suggests. Oh, that's a will. shame. I like him. I know. That's he has Lin nice Chen. hair. He has such he nice hair. Anyway, he does have lovely hair. Lin Chen is not Machiavellian, however, Mei Chang Su. Yeah. So the temple we are actually talking about this time is a 27,000 word long piece of fan fiction about Jing Yan and Mei Chang Su. And the thing about Mei Chang Su is that he is the archetypical, tragic, concealed identity Machiavellian overthinker. He is such a ridiculous chess master who must keep his identity hidden because the honour of the court depends upon it and he couldn't possibly put his childhood beloved friend in that position. And what he actually means by that is emotions are messy and yes. I don't want them on my chessboard. Ick, ick, make them stop touching me. <laughs> yes. So, in this fanfic, which has a 5,000 word prequel, it posits that before canon begins, Mei Chang Su accidentally runs into his best friend forever and beloved Jing Yan, and they fuck really sensually and romantically. So, like, they they make love. Yeah. Um, while Jing Yan is under the impression that Mei Chang Su is an anonymous courtesan. Bless. And oh. the lithographic picks up from the beginning of canon, where in canon, Mei Chang Su arrives in town pretending to be this very wise scholar, Su Zhe, I believe that's the right name. He has so many names, I die. And basically, Su Zhe comes to town and says, hey, Jing Yan, I will pick you as my prince. And then Machiavellian shenanigans begin as they manipulate the court and the populace and try to kill off the rivals and all of this. This fic posits exactly the same thing, except that these two have previously slept together and Jing Yan is completely in love with him. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's just like poor Jing Yan. <laughs> Jing Yan is a precious Hufflepuff he and is. did not deserve to have Mei Chang Su happen to him, as <laughs> is frequently the case with Machiavellian beloveds. That's, that's true. It's, but it's, it's so great. Like Mei Chang Su comes in and is like, I'm going to make you the prince. I'm going to put you on the throne of the emperor. This is, this is all how it's going to work. And Yang Yan's like, yeah, that's okay, but I can keep giving you presents and we can keep sleeping together, right? I'm just going to quietly shove all of these furs that I bought for you in the three years since I slept with you in a pagoda, you anonymous courtesan that I fell in love with three years ago and have been buying 
musical instruments for and hiding them in my home in the off chance <laughs> that I would manage to track you down and shower you with gifts. Oh Everyone around them is like, this is such a beautiful romantic story. And Mei Chung Su's like, oh dear. Oh no, I have miscalculated. <laughs> so this is what happens when your Machiavellian gains an adorable cinnamon roll limpet and is slightly hampered by this fact. <laughs> Especially if your entire plan hinges on getting your adorable cinnamon roll onto the throne and, and then, then dying. immediately dying and leaving him alone because that's not going to be emotionally traumatizing at all in no. any way. Yes, no. from Mei Chang Su's point of view, well, I am too tainted. My honor is, is foul. The throne could never be good and pure if I was still alive. I will leave Jin Yan to be good and pure in my place. Oh. <laughs> what I loved most about this fic, now, as I said, I have only watched like half of one episode of Nirvana and Fire at this point. So I, a lot of stuff in this fic went right over my head. This is the very first fic that I have read in this fandom. And as is traditional, the first fic you read in a fandom that you have no idea what the canon is, is always completely incomprehensible. But I will tell you the one thing that I did love about this fic was the presence of magical healing cock. So that is exceedingly present in the entire fandom. That's wonderful. I'm now invested. Well, it's because of the way they characterize his illness. It's really funny. Yes. <laughs> the whole point is, I, I can't remember all the details um, with that audio encapsulation of, of his energy is the balance between the yin and the yang yes. and the cool energy and the heat energy yeah. and that he's actually got too much of the cool energy and he needs more yang. And, and the figure's like, well, here we go. You have, here you go, have a, pre, have a prince-sized water buffalo container full of yang that, <laughs> that will, yes, um, this Yang listen, in quotation marks. Yang. It is fairly blatantly obvious in canon and the supplemental materials that the creator of this entire thing deeply believes these two are in love and fuck. Mm. Like, the, the, the whole thing with, like, when before they part ways as small children who are in love with each other one of them is sent off on a quest for a pearl the size of a pigeon's egg mm -hmm. for the other as what is clearly referred to as like a love token yeah yeah they're doing it yeah but the the whole thing is that mei shang su is continually uh, shown to us as an example of a machiavellian overthinker and in canon and in this fic he is just continually hobbled mm. by, by the realization that Jin Yan adores him. And he's going, no, 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 bad puppy. Stop chewing on my ankle, go away. He is very much a chess master in the canon. And I think it's interesting trying to read this fic because canon is ducking in and out of it in the background. So you're seeing that most of his chess moves are still working in exactly the way he wants them to mm -hmm. because he has emotional distance from these people and he can manipulate them as he wants to. But it is, again, an illustration of what happens when you set up your entire plan around one person who is your most important person, and then emotions come in with their enormous boots and go, dropping <laughs> all over the chessboard. Yeah. <sighs> it's beautiful. Would you say that Mei Cheng Su, like the way that I see Miles, just to compare the two of mm -hmm. them, Miles seems much more receptive to emotion. He seems much mm. more aware of the place of emotion in his chessboard strategy because he is so good at people. And one of the reasons he's so good at people is because he understands the presence of emotion mm -hmm. and accepts it and 
accepts it as a factor in the people around him. And Mei Cheng Su kind of, just from this one fic, strikes me as someone who thinks that maybe other people like him don't have as many emotions. I would say a bit more, um, Mei Cheng Su does two things terribly in the show in canon. Uh, one of them is have emotions. Yeah. He's real bad at that. He just like squishes them. He's like, what me? No, crying, no, no, that's your imagination. And the second thing is he continually discounts people's emotions towards him. Now, in general, he's reasonably okay with emotions. He happily manipulates the loyalty of others towards their liege or um, the way that they have envy or jealousy of one another. But anytime someone expresses personal loyalty to him or acts in a way that puts him first, he is completely baffled and bewildered. And it's frankly adorable. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's and real cute. He's setting up a gravitational system in which he can only think of himself as being entirely external to it. So he mm -hmm. thinks about these people acting on one another and he sort of sees himself as sitting there observing it and nudging things and making things happen. But he has failed to to work into his plans the fact that he himself is also acting on the system because of people being drawn to him. And he doesn't think of himself as that. He thinks of himself as almost like a spirit that doesn't have that ability to influence events except in the ways that he deliberately does. And I would actually pull this back to our fealty episode because I think what's happening here is that in Mei Chang Su's head, he is building a fealty system around the liege lord Jing Yan and he is attempting to graft a bunch of followers onto Jing Yan. And what he has failed to take into account is many of those followers are smart enough to see that the actual liege lord behind it all is Mei Chang Su. And their loyalty and fealty is going to Mei Chang Su. And he is like scraping them off, like, get you over there. You should be on him. Stop. Why are you looking at me like that? Go look at him like that. I think yeah, that's what's happening. Yeah, he thinks of it as, as, as he's creating this beautiful system with some reins in his hands. And then he can just easily pass them over to Jin Yan and go away and die nobly in a hole. Except the horses do not want to be handed over. No, the horses are like, but, 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 come back. Because, as it turns out, people have their own agency <laughs> and you can't move them around like that. <laughs> and it's especially difficult for Mei Chang Su because he is so good at it in other areas. Yeah. Everybody else is behaving themselves. Why can't the people he loves behave themselves? It's <sighs> very good. So we're moving on to now less of a an emotional turmoil chess master foiled by their own loved ones story. Uh, the third temple we wanted to talk about is the character of Lord Vetinari from the Discworld books, uh, and in particular, the book Jingo. Yes. So Jingo is one of the City Watch Discworld books, uh, and it is about, it focuses more on, on Sam Vimers, but the patrician has a fairly major role in it compared to some of the other books. And it is about essentially the dangers of Jingoism, and it is a very much a satire of race relations and the mm. problems with nationalism and it's you know very funny as well as making a lot of very pointed social commentary and the patrician gets to do some interesting things in it including leave the city and interact with some characters that he normally wouldn't interact with and you get to see the way that his particular chess master mind works and i love him which so i very much. much enjoy i love him the thing that Pratchett does so many machiavellian overthinkers i i, I want to say it's one of his archetypes that he likes to do and I think Vetinari is probably the most classic 
of those. Yeah, he's mm. the most pure, definitely. And he's just so sardonic and cool, and you have to always look at him twice. I think it helps that we tend to see him through Vimes's eyes. Yes, I think so too. I think that if we ever had gotten a book from Vetinari's point of view, I think it would have taken away a lot of the magic. Like, part of the magic of Vetinari is watching him work from the outside rather than seeing anything that goes on in his actual head. You get very small snippets from his point of view. Yeah. I think when he goes and visits Leonard yes. of Quirm, he's yes, like locked up pet genius who is transparently Leonardo da Vinci, which is adding more onto the idea of him being a very Machiavellian type archetype. Yes. You get to see little bits of the way his mind works, but I agree, you could never see the whole thing. That would just ruin everything. It's a, it's, yeah. it's negative space again. It's that, that favourite of yes. writer tricks. Yes, mm. very much. And one of the things that sets the Patrician apart is the way that he thinks about the city. So mm. again, he does not do things we sort of assume or we see through the way that he acts out of any particular personal desire for glory mm. he really likes controlling people and he obviously gets a lot of satisfaction out of the way he does manipulate events but we see from the conversations that he has with vimes is that what is actually at the heart of his actions is a belief in the best interests of the city mm -hmm. and that he is the best person to be a despot essentially <laughs> for this city yeah. because he knows how to make it tick and he knows that he can hold the city in his mind as a model and he knows how people work. Mm -hmm. I agree with you, Macy, that Pratchett does a lot with this particular archetype and I think it's because Pratchett's genius is that of knowledge of human nature. Mm -hmm. And so to illustrate that, we have a few of his recurring characters who are extremely good observers of human nature uh, and they use that to make things move around them. I think that one of the classical comparisons for Vetinari is, is Granny Weatherwax. I love her so much, but she is a totally different type of despot. She is a despot. She is the ruler. Yeah. And she is one of our very rare examples of a female Machiavellian character who isn't evil. Mm. And she does get viewed as evil sometimes, even so, within her culture, but it's fairly obvious from the narratives that she isn't. Yeah, she's presented, I think, as a highly moral character yes. at the core, more so than Vetinari, yes. I would say. Vetinari is presented as pragmatic and he is acting for a greater good, but in a fairly amoral sort yes. of way. Whereas Granny Weatherwax and also Sam Vimes, who's mm. the other you know, meticulous observer of human nature who uses that to great effect, they are both presented as extremely moral yes. in their own ways. What do you guys think of... Cause... When I think of Pratchett's Machiavellian overthinkers or observers of human nature, I immediately think of Moist von Lippwig hmm. from uh, going postal and making money. Zenata speed chess. Zenata yeah. speed chess. I think of him as inherently reactive in the same way that early Miles was reactive. Actually, I should define my yeah. terms. A Zenata speed chess is a TV tropism uh, referring to, I believe, a character from the cartoon Gargoyles. Is that right? And it refers essentially to a character who is smart enough that from the outside it looks like they have a genius plan, but they're actually just playing shuffleboard. They're, they're continually reacting to circumstances so fast that they can turn almost anything to their advantage, as opposed to mm -hmm. kind of having it all mapped out in advance. So that's the distinction we're drawing there. And they're, they're an interesting character to follow as well, but you haven't got that same overthinker sense there because you haven't got a best laid plan that is then being disrupted. And I think 
may I might be wrong. Please discuss this with me, friends. I think that when you're on the inside, a Zanata speed chess player is a more interesting character to read about than a Machiavellian. I would agree because they're more messy. Yeah. And messy is interesting. Mm. And more happens that they don't expect. Right. So if you're if you're doing a good narrative of a Machiavellian plan being carried out perfectly, which is an enjoyable type of thing, you do have to see it from the outside. Otherwise, it's just boring. Yeah, because it's then like problem, defeated problem, problem, solved problem, problem, solved problem over and over again, rather than as your your the cycle of your book's plot structure rather than problem causes a setback then react to the setback and change your strategy Mm. it's more there's more variation in the movements of the dance rather than just doing the same thing over and over again which i think until you reach the end i think freya you've talked about this before in the context of heists yes yes yeah i was thinking again about the oceans films and both can we just take a second can we just take a second take a second can we just take a second we need to take a few seconds for all of us to just remember kate we are really sorry poor scribes for the ensuing <laughs> noises that oh, 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 oh. oceans eight was so good i can't the blue suit with the clip holding it closed i know i'm too gay you're you're real i'm story. too gay like i'm I i'm not historically i'm not into girls but like even i like felt a couple oh. little flutters in my chest during that <laughs> during that movie oh my when god when she fed her wife a spoonful of food ah Ah, wives. Extremely good. good. Anyway, let's gather ourselves together. Extremely good. Extremely wives. The most wives. (laughs) Let's collect ourselves. Let's Ah. scrape ourselves off the floor. Ah. Heavy ocean as example of planner and overthinking. We should mention the thing that we were just making, let's call it noises, about was the movie Oceans 8. Yes. Yes. In which... (laughs) Debbie Ocean, sister of Danny Ocean, also gets out of a long stint in jail with a plan. And that's what I quite like about both Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Eight is that these people are planners and they have a very clear thing and they've had time to work them through. And Debbie says that in Ocean's Eight. She said she spent her, whatever it was, five years in prison running this plan again and again. And she said, and every time I got caught, I fixed it. So I didn't get caught and then I ran it again which is like the most Machiavellian chess game thing ever that you can run mental simulations of this plan to find all of the kinks and iron them out. Until it's perfect. And that's why watching Oceans 8 and Oceans 11, even though they are perfectly carried out plans, you're not privy to what all of those kinks and bits and pieces are. So you're just sitting there watching it and going, well, this is just nice competence point all around. Yes, 100%. Like even though you have those cycles of, of... problem solution problem solution problem solution like you're watching it from the outside rather than from the yes inside and that's what makes it fun and compelling and like you said competence foreign i think yeah. point of view solves everything yeah and a lot of yeah. times to be fair a lot of times in con artist films and media when sometimes the author will present it author or creator will present a thing as a problem and oh no now everything is ruined but it turns out that that was foreseen and that they already have something in place to fix it and you get to find out Mm. what that is a couple steps down the line so Mm. sometimes the problem solution problem solution cycle is kind of jumbled up so you don't Mm. always get the solution immediately and i think that's something that can 
help make it more compelling and interesting to the reader or to the person consuming mm. the media. I, I think it's interesting because it doesn't always work. Sometimes it's just like, um, well, that seems fake. Yeah. You know too much. Like that was that came out of nowhere. You didn't lay enough clues for the reader to figure it out. So it's a really interesting, like delicate game that you can play. You have to give the reader enough satisfaction that they don't feel completely lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you have to have, it's good to have a big, oh my goodness, reveal, but it can't seem too much like a deus ex machina. You actually have to have a sense that this could organically have grown out of the story thus far. Yes, like the actress character from Ocean's 8 realizing yeah. what was going on. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. Now that I have this information, this makes sense. Yeah, that was mm. so good. I Do you want it. to circle back to Jingo at all? Or we kind of just were just like, here's a book, boom, move, move We talked fast. a bunch about veterinary and weatherwax. Well, I wanted to, like I was gonna go say, on. I had a few things to say about him and Jingo in particular, but you go on, go on, yep, go ahead. Especially comparing it to Civil Campaign. Mm -hmm. I think Jingo, in a, in a book about the patrician, it actually shows quite well, again, the genius for human resources and using people as tools. So we see, him deploy Vimes as he deploys Vimes to hilarious effects throughout many of the books to say this is a problem that I think you can solve go and be diplomatic in extreme air quotes uh, at this problem and then when he decides to go there himself he takes along what seems like very unlikely uh, assistance yes. in the form of essentially the Shakespearean comic relief characters uh, and you see him reacting mostly when he gets there himself but also using the people he brought along yeah and using their weaknesses and using the hilarious sides of their personalities to achieve his goals which is why it, he almost is more like a milesian kind of chess master in that particular book because he is reacting to a situation but the reason he can do it effectively is because he thought ahead and brought the right tools with him. Just a quick question, sort of a hypothetical bit of a mind game for you. Supposing that Miles and Vetinari were playing some kind of chess master game against each other, who would win? Mm -hmm. It depends if they were defending and attacking, because I think that Miles strikes me as better at attacking. I would agree. Hmm. I also think whether, are we talking a game or are we talking something serious? Because I think, mm. Miles will always put more of his own skin in the game. Yes. Because every, he will, in the end, take everything deeply personally. That's yes. true. Whereas Veterinary will use almost anybody else, but still thinks of himself as valuable because he knows nobody else can run the city the way he does. So I think if it came down to sort of bare knuckles, Miles would find some way to tip the balance because he would put so much more of himself or yeah. risk more of himself. He has so much more personal and investment. That might be unpredictable if Vetinari didn't know what kind of person he was. Right. That's very true. I have to say, as someone who loves these kind of characters and loves these kind of storylines, I fucking hate chess. <laughs> it is so boring. Yeah, me too. I tried to be the kind of person who was into chess because it seemed, you know, like it would fit with the kind of person that I wanted to yeah. be, but oh my god. I, I don't it's so much mental effort for no purpose. Yeah. Why would you want I would just much rather create something yeah, I agree. than sit there moving things and have created nothing. I, I like chess puzzles and I like Go puzzles. I don't like the whole game. I do get bored at that length, but like I like the little puzzles that you can kind of logic out. You can, there are enough constrained moves that you can just run them in your head and figure out which one it makes sense. But I do want to bring mm -hmm. something back to um, Machiavellian versus Zanatos to use our, our invented terminology because God knows we love ourselves a taxonomy. Yes, it's true. I posit 
that if you are only a Machiavellian planner, you tend to be a character that's more used as a villain because your plans tend to be brittle and breakable. Once your plans, once your plans make contact with the enemy, no, no plan survives contact with the enemy. So when you have a character who is Machiavellian until the shit hits the fan and then they are capable of turning into Xenatos mode, they are much more flexible and able to win. Yeah, adaptive. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So they, make, they make a good person to barrack for, but they also make a, a more interesting villain. I think it depends on how complicated you're prepared to get That's in your true. rise and fall of the narrative. Well, I'm thinking of uh, Melisande from Kushiel's Dart. Mm. She's so badass. It's been probably 10 years since I read those books, but she I remember sticks. that she was like so badass and she always had the best dresses. Yeah, she is definitely evil. Yeah. In many ways. Yeah. And she has this elaborate plan with multiple, multiple layers. It's like some sort of layer cake where each layer is made of like those little tiny crepes with like stuff in between. Yeah. But when you cut all the way down to the bottom of it and you cut all the way down to the end of her plans, she crumples. Hmm. She's just done for. And when we are setting it up as a narrative, I think usually what allows you to reach the end of those layers is that that person is in some way underestimating or misjudging your protagonist or the person who is moving against them. I would say, or they are fundamentally constrained in some way, either by themselves or by society, or like you can back them into a corner. Mm -hmm. mm. What about other uh, examples of this trope beyond what we have in our tent poles? Does Freya want to talk about Captive Prince? Does she? Freya does. Oh. I was being really good and quiet and not like bursting out and saying, actually, the <laughs> regent from Captive Prince oh, is, a, is actually a good example of a planner who also has an ability to shift. And that's what makes mm. him very dangerous because he's essentially a foil for mm -hmm. Laurent. Mm -hmm. in that Laurent has learned to react to things because that's what his uncle does. Right. So they are very similar in that they both have far-reaching plans, but they both also have some of that Zanatos ability to turn on a dime mm -hmm. and say, right, that's gone wrong, now I'll do this. And mm -hmm. so that does maintain tension really well throughout because you know that both of them have plans, but because you're seeing things from Damon's point of view, you never see all of the good guy's plan, you never see all of the villain's plan, and so there is a lot of tension held up with that. And yes, yes Laurent himself is an example of someone who lays down a lot of plans. But I would also argue there is another type of at least manipulative character that mm -hmm. we see here. And mostly in one of the short stories, Pet, which is one of the short story sequels that Pacat wrote, the character of Ansel, mm -hmm. who is very much manipulative and tries to play on human nature. But the whole point of Pet, the short story, is again, it is about somebody having a blind spot for emotion mm. and about this person who has raised to be essentially a very expensive courtesan using all of their tips and tricks and beauty and ability to charm people on someone who is very straightforward and really wishes they would just take off all the silks and like have a nice conversation about, you know, a book possibly. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story. Would you call them perhaps, oh, I don't know, a weaponized submission twink? First of all, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I absolutely if would. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, weaponized submission twink is a term that Macy, no, it was Freya, no. Freya made it up, didn't it you? It was me. It was you. <laughs> made it up specifically to 
torment and mock me <laughs> for a particular kind of character that I really like writing and I have written several times now. But okay, okay. I did want us to get it though to, here's the thing, with Levant and the Regent, you mentioned something mm -hmm. very interesting, which is that we see them from actually the point of view of Damon. And it does seem to me that a lot of our Machiavellian overthinkers and overlords have a a pet Hufflepuff. Oh yes, or Gryffindor, or Gryffindor, or Ravenclaw. They 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 seem to have like okay, let me do a quick categorization, and then you guys can argue with me. All right. I would say Vimes for Gryffindor. Yeah. I would say um, Ekaterin for Ravenclaw. With I, Miles. I could see her potentially as a Hufflepuff. I could, but I think that the love for the gardening and the like investigativeness, the curiosity pushes me Ravenclaw, but I could argue either way. Okay. And then Jinyan is 500 million percent Hufflepuff with a smidge of Gryffindor honor. And Damon, yeah. I either Puff or Gryffindor? Yeah, I think because if we're thinking about Sodding Hat Chats, he's so Gryffindor in his secondary that mm. it kind of overwhelms everything That's else. True. But I think this is, it's having a straightforward, fo it's not a foil, because foil is like you, right? No, I think foil is a good word, and I think it's because you have to have a foil for this kind of character mm. for them not to be insufferable. Yes. Yes, no exactly. No matter how much you enjoy them, you have to have a contrast. Would you call it a straight man? Prone. Prone! <laughs> Ideally, no, because I think... <laughs> Well, I think you see a lot of this does also shift into the fealty tropes that we talked yes. about in our fealty episode, and we haven't mentioned Astolat, take a shot, <laughs> uh, but if you have a look at um, Astolat's Witcher. Oh gosh, no, you're right. Oh no, Freya, why? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, she writes, um, I can't even pronounce his name, the Emperor, as very much one of these Machiavellian overplanners, but the whole point of that is that you then have Geralt as the Gryffindor foil. Yeah. I'm gonna say what what's the one what's the one with the love potion? That's the one you need to read for Mizathere. this episode. Mizathere. Mizathere. Yeah. Yes, go read Miz that's the one we should quote for this. Yes. Right. Oh that's god. A fantastic a fantastic illustration of someone coming up with an amazing Machiavellian chessboard oh. game and then things going wrong And trolling himself. Yes. Yeah. Because they always oh, troll so themselves. Great. That's the most satisfying art for Machiavellian overthinker is you trolled yourself. Well done. Good job. It's one of It's one of them, yeah. Macy, you mentioned that a lot of times either the Machiavellian overthinker is a trope that's either not used for women or when it is used, they're primarily and overwhelmingly evil. Were there any other uh, uses of the trope for women that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I mean, there's a few for like the evil slash not irredeemably evil side of things. So I was thinking of Regina from Once Upon a Time. Mm, yes. Right? And I love her. She has so much want inside her. She has such a drive for the things that she wants, which are basically just to have a family. Yeah. But she goes about it in such god-awful ways. <laughs> yeah. That it's just like, oh, God, no, again. Again, was this necessary? Did you not learn last time? Um, another one that I adore is I... There are certain things I love, like Earl Grey tea, yeah. that I am very picky about and I want one specific version of. Another one of those things is Sherlock Holmes adaptions. Mm -hmm. I want one specific Sherlock Holmes adaption, and that one is elementary. I will not watch Sherlock. Don't make me watch House. You will not get me within a mile of those movies, dear God. 
but elementary. Elementary is I very good. I do love what they do with Moriarty, and it's worth <sighs> thinking about because they do almost nothing except change the gender of the character. And they suddenly, really, they, it and suddenly, so much more depth. So interesting, and it shows you just how lacking we are in those kinds of characters, those sort of complex yes. chess master characters who are female. Awesome. Also, I mean, problem. She is Natalie Dormer. What? How, how is that a problem? It's that not. Is a pro- it's that is a pro- a the only problem. <sighs> it's just that Macy's really gay. Yeah. The only problem is <laughs> that I would like instantly fall for any trick she wanted to play on me. And it, <laughs> uh, well, I think that's the point. Yes, yeah. I know. I yeah. know. So, so those are a few examples, but they are like the type of evil that mm. I think women tend to fall into mm. when they are this trope because. Yeah. Um, being manipulative is seen as such a feminine, like Eve type thing. It's mm-hmm. such a uh, stereotypical female power that is wielded to be bad. Yes, but it's also because we see manipulation is often presented as the only way in which women can mm-hmm. wield power. Mm-hmm. And so, if we're thinking about Nirvana in Fire, Macy, I think you mentioned that if you think about the the women in Nirvana in Fire exercise their power in much more subtle ways but often it is quite calculating and quite machiavellian because they are having to work in a social sphere even though it is very political i would say in that show in particular though there are two female characters who are basically male characters which is Mm -hmm. the princess ni huang who is a noble warrior just like jing yan but with like slightly more of a sense of humor and an actual brain Unlike the poor water buffalo. And then there's uh, Jadong, who is a ninja spy. But they're both like basically entirely masculine characters who just happen to be women because this is 20 gay teen, for God's sake. Whereas we were, to- I think the character you're thinking of is Jin Yan's mother. Well, also the mothers of the other princes. You are totally right, actually. Yes, you're totally right. The, the courtesans and empress have to exercise their power in much more constrained ways within the walls of the palace. Yeah, I and mean, in Civil Campaign as well, we see not all of the chess masters moving are male. So yes. Elise Fulpatrell, who I absolutely love, uh, you know, they, they present her throughout as this you know head of the social sphere and she knows everybody and she knows all the gossip and she's mostly using it in order to organise a wedding. Mm-hmm. Oh, Alice Fulpatrella in uh, yeah, a in Civil, Civil Campaign? campaign. Right? Yeah. 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 We also see as the book unfolds that she uses that power politically, that she can easily help people get votes, that she can, and that she is actually uh, somebody's handler when it comes to actual outright secret service stuff. And I love well, that. And I, I did also particularly love that the way they got her on side with wrangling those votes was telling her that one of the opposition had dismissed her. So she gets to have pride in what she can do. Yeah. And she's like middle-aged or older. And she's acknowledged as this frightening figure in the way she can use people. Like all these different types, basically. Ivan goes around threatening people by saying, I set my (laughs) mum on you. And everyone's like, oh no, not Lady Bopatrol. She'll do something for the wedding and it'll be awful. (laughs) But you get the sense that she could very easily ruin someone's life because she has that social power. Which she's so great. in the sphere that uh, uh, that she's allowed to wield it on barrier, mm. which still has those gender role hang-ups, it is about the most power available to a woman, and it is still a lot of power. 
but a lot of people will underestimate it and a lot of men will underestimate it because it's not what they think of as power. And, you know, it's been a long while since I read some of these books, but I'm also thinking back to the Setagandan women and the Oat women. Mm, I yes. haven't read those books yet. Well, some of those also are very like manipulative and they wield power across the genome of an empire. Mm. Right, because they're the only ones who control like the genetic... What's the, the project that they're doing? They're basically like redesigning the genetic code for this mm. whole race of people mm -hmm. and doing it in a really like elegant and artistic kind of aesthetic way. It's an amazing metaphor for female control over reproduction and fertility, except in a very having agency kind of way. Like they're doing it deliberately. They have deliberate actual control over this rather yes. than it being left to chance and genetics. Which is something that I loved back to the fanfic again, A Deeper Season, where the sequel to that goes into the reclamation of a technology to allow two men to reproduce genetically, mm -hmm. and that it comes from the Setagandan women. Mm, yeah, I do love that Civil Campaign shows you all these different types of power and different types of manipulators. Because that's what makes it such a good book. It's a book about people trying to manipulate other people, not necessarily for dastardly ends, more really for social ends. But you have to have yeah. those kinds of those kinds of characters there. I was just going to say, I have another quick recommendation. If you have watched Nirvana and Fire and really loved it and wanted more of that kind of thing, there is this Turkish historical drama called Magnificent Century, which is set during the height of the Ottoman Empire uh, in the court of Suleiman the Magnificent. And it is full of powerful women because there's like two male characters ha! and the rest of them are the female characters in the sultan's uh harem oh you will have and to tell me where to find this yes yes i yes. think it's on youtube but it's incredible the dorothy dunnett lyman books which i was again going to mention in the captive prince context but a lot of those are about different political historical contexts and the ways in which people wielded power and one of the books is set in pretty much uh, a harem and shows the ways in which the women wielded power again because that was how they could do it within that context and the kind of that's what makes the, the stories good it shows you who needs to what kind of character do you need in that context to create tension to create narrative but i think this is what i'm coming back after talking about this with you you two for a while now is i'm coming to the conclusion these these machiavellian characters they move people that's what they move they don't do they don't move mountains they don't move elephants around the chessboard they manipulate individual people on a one-by-one -one basis or by means of loyalty and propaganda to do it on a broader scale but again it comes back to it's all about the people hmm. i have a i have a quote so this is about yes the types of people and it probably actually relates to the uh house sorting as well uh so this is not actually from the prince it is from the introduction to my uh, edition of the prince says, so in particular, Machiavelli is fascinated by the way certain personality traits can mesh positively or negatively with certain sets of historical circumstances. A man can be successful in one situation, then fail miserably in another. A policy that works well in one moment is a disaster the next. Brackets, Miles Volkowski, close brackets. Yes. <laughs> Rather than one ideal ruler, then, different men are required for different situations. The only key to permanent political success would be always to adapt one's deepest instincts to new events. But, as Machiavelli ruefully observes, that would effectively mean the end of luck and the end of history.
everybody. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. Of the characters we talked about today, Miles Verkozigan is particularly close to my heart, but I just really love wickedly smart characters who get tangled up in their own cleverness and fall on their faces and, you know, learn from their mistakes. Gives me hope for myself that maybe I can stop falling on my face so often too. Anyway, we have some even more exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence, on August 1st, we'll be discussing fairy tale adaptions. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tent poles for that episode is Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik, which just came out last week. It is an incredibly good book. I highly recommend it. We're going to be uh, having some really great discussions about it. If you have a friend who's into stuff like that, maybe give them a heads up. In the meantime, feel free to continue the conversation with us. Questions? Comments? Breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com, at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr, or join in the conversation in our fan Discord chat, linked on the About the Show page of our website. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to review us on iTunes. And, by the way, you have the cutest laugh. <laughs>